This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of For Tech Sake. Following up on our conversation about digital money and things that aren't money, but also kind of are, we have more on this spiralling conversation to get your head in a spin about economics and finance in the digital age. Thankfully, we had Rachel O'Dwyer as our guide. She is a lecturer in digital cultures at the National College of Art and Design, and her book, Tokens, The Future of Money in the Age of the Platform, provided much of the inspiration for this discussion. We spoke at length about how we value things and the future of economics, covering digital tokens from Robux to NFTs. If you want to jump straight into what we couldn't fit in the main episode, we'll signpost you with some timestamps in the show notes. We hope you enjoy this chat as much as we did, and be sure to come back next week for an all-new episode. So, Rachel, what's money? Can you tell us? Can you help? Well, I mean, there's that kind of like classic economic definition of money, which is pretty boring, which is, you know, money is, uh, economists think money is a, a store of value. So it's something that you can use to like store value, like something you could hoard under your mattress. Okay. Um, it's a means of exchange. So it's something you can, you know, use to exchange for other stuff. And it's a unit of account. So it's something that you can use to figure out what things are worth. So David Graeber, who's this, uh, was this really, really well-known um, anthropologist, uh, claims that apparently in ancient Ireland, like bond maidens, don't really know what a bond maiden is. Uh, I think they were like slave girls. Right. Uh, were used as a unit of account. That doesn't mean that people went around and actually used bond maidens to buy things, but they were used to sort of measure value. So five cows equals one bond maiden. You know. And would that be like if you had, say, an estate or a household that had a certain number of bond maidens, would that like reflect your status? I guess. Or economy? like, yeah, so bond maidens would be used in sort of settling debts, maybe, mm-hmm. you know. And also if you're figuring out, you know, how much something was worth, you would say, you know, maybe this number of cattle was worth this number of bond maidens or, you know, there's that famous story from the town where Queen Maeve gets really angry because her husband has, I think, one bull more than her. So you're trying to figure out like the relative value of things next to mm-hmm. each other. So money like the euro or the dollar is a unit of account. It's a way of figuring out how much things are worth. So, you know, classically money is something that has these three functions. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you had that really interesting, I suppose, discussion about like what actually is value and why is money valuable? And I, I just I find that like endlessly fascinating. That's why I'm obsessed mm. with your book, which yeah. I've only just started what, yeah. and I'm already like <laughs> my head is filled with ideas from it because you're exploring that notion of value yeah. in this digital context. And the yeah. way you describe it is that you write in the book about things that are almost but not quite money. Yeah. Because it's these token-based yeah, economies. Yeah. Tell us about that, if you yeah. can summarise. No, yeah, so, I mean, uh, I was just going to tell a little bit of maybe a backstory of how I, I suppose I got into this, because my background is actually in fine art. Like, it's not in economics or finance. So I similarly have that feeling of, like, I don't know if I fully understand money. Um But, yeah, coming from fine art, I guess I graduated into the financial crash. And... Up until that point and very much at that point, I suppose I was thinking about money in terms of like having 
or not having it like most people. And I never really stopped to actually think about what money was or what it did. And I guess around that time when people were talking about, you know, what would happen if Ireland like defaulted on its loans, for example, I started to wonder like what actually is money and, you know, what are the implications of that? And um it was around that time I came across one of these like token based economies. So I came across this thing called airtime, which is basically where people were using uh, phone credit as a means of payment. So we're probably all familiar with phone credit, you mm-hmm. know, where uh, it's like, you know, a, a code that you can use to top up your phone and then talk to people or text or play games. But in uh, places like Zimbabwe and in Kenya at the turn of the 21st century, where inflation, I suppose, had damaged currency, people were using airtime as a a means of exchange. They were using it as a kind of de facto currency in the absence of available real money. And that just sort of kind of blew my mind. So I was like, OK, hang on. So instead of using phone credit to talk to people, they're using this as a kind of token, as a kind of money. And uh, yeah, this was a kind of money, I suppose, that was like riding the rails of a mobile network operator. And yeah, because this was yeah. M-Pesa. M- yeah, it's the beginning. Yeah, I suppose it's, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was kind of the beginning of M-Pesa, you yeah. know, because actually it sort of started just with people. Uh, and then it was then kind of Safaricom, which is kind of Vodafone's, you know, yeah, it's it's kind of a wing of Vodafone sort of looked at this practice and we're like, hang on, like, mm. so we could be a bank, you know, and then that's sort of where M-Pesa, yeah. which is like, as you say, it's like the world's largest basically mobile network payment system emerged from. And yeah. the thing is, they're not a bank. They're not a bank. Yeah, So they're not regulated the way a bank yeah, would be. Exactly. But what they have done is found a way to provide financial services to an entire population of people yeah. in an unregulated way, yeah. essentially. Yeah, so it's like, because they're not a bank, I guess, but they're t- still doing kind of money-like yeah. things. And I remember writing about M-Pesa. Yeah. Like, they yeah. were one of the absolute mega pioneers of the whole fintech sector. Like, when I first started writing about the words fintech, I was writing about M-Pesa, yeah. I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah. Um, and it was the this idea that African countries had a lot of unbanked populations. Exactly. People with um, phones, but no bank accounts. And phone credit, yeah. like phone credit, like you said, was becoming yeah. kind of a form of finance for these yeah. people. Yeah. Um, because your phone has access to so many things as exactly. well. Um, yeah. So it just, it, it totally made sense. And like a company, very smartly, you know, business uh, in business sense, saw this as a commercial opportunity and took it on board. But like that, like you said, that was the turn of the 21st century and still, like you can do that and still not be regulated like a bank. Like at this stage, it's like, lads, come on, they're they're doing finance over here. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I can't believe it's not banking. And I think Ampeso <laughs> was like the beginning of a whole shift where we're seeing these companies with a legacy in whether it's mobile networks or digital platforms or gaming or internet retail kind of emerging and becoming, yeah, the new banks. But as you pointed out, Elaine, you know, not not like applying for a financial license, license yeah. something like that. you know, yeah. and, and sort of because these tokens are not, they're kind of not quite money. It sort of allows them to do bank like things without officially being a bank. You know, allows them to process payments yeah, without officially being seen to handle money. Like a loophole that, to avoid the yeah. regulation of the finance. Yeah, because I think yeah. some have even figured out how to do loans. I don't know if M-Pesa does loans, loans but some of them in this underwriting space. Underwriting credit. Yeah. 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 But also kind of allows them sometimes to actually act as an employer 
without officially being seen to employ because some of these money-like things are also used as a form of payment. But because they're not quite money in an official sense, it sort of allows the platform to uh, be allowed. You know, it's another regulatory loophole where it allows mm. the platform to sort of say, well, actually, because this isn't officially money, I'm not officially, not only yeah, not employing. a bank, but I'm also not officially an employer. Yeah, it's so murky, and that's mm. it's some, it's a phrase I learned from reading tokens was script payments. Um, mm. I wasn't familiar with that, but it's 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 a lovely kind of way of illustrating how a lot of the times these things are built on modern technology, but they're rarely new or novel ideas. So script payments is something that has a long history that I learned uh, from your writing, but it's essentially a company pays. Uh, you know, a worker or someone who's doing a job for them in a way that ends up benefiting only that company. So a company might uh, give a worker vouchers for that business. Yeah. Like, so the money is still circulating within that business. And Amazon is doing this for mechanical Turk workers. So for anyone yeah. who's not familiar, we've mentioned it before, but just uh, to refresh your memory, Mechanical Turk is like a micro-jobbing platform where people get paid for tasks. They're often kind of drudge work um, and they're often payments that are going to people of poorer economies um, that are trying to, you know, make ends meet or whatever. But Amazon, like a tech behemoth that's literally unmatched in its commercial power, through paying workers with its own gift cards, owns an ecosystem to the extent that people getting paid for work can only spend that within its platform. Like, the fact that that's allowed, mm. it's, it's beggar's belief. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, I suppose to clarify, um, not that, you know, not that this is particularly positive, it's, suppose it's workers outside of the US and more recently outside of India. But even then, it's, you know, it's still a huge amount of their workers. And as you say, you know, one of the things that blew my mind, I suppose, about a lot of these token economies is that there's such a big history of them. So, yes, grip was like a really sort of common form of exploitation in payments in the past, where, as you say, exactly like workers got exploited, you know, when they were paid a wage. And then they were exploited at the other end because the token that they were paid in could only be redeemed, you know, in mm -hmm. the company's store, sometimes for goods that the people were even labouring to produce and you know mm. the, the the employer got to decide exactly how much the token was even worth and that's exactly what's happening with Amazon gift card balances and not only are people being paid in these gift card balances they're tied to the worker's identity so they mm. can't even transfer them easily to somebody else oh, of uh, so they can only redeem them themselves yeah. and um, yeah weirdly enough in the 18th century you know because they're very very exploitative script was actually done away with. Uh, so there were truck acts, as they were known, uh, did away with script payments because, you know, they're super bad and exploitative. Uh, and then electronic cash transfers came around in the 1980s and they created a bit like tokens, a sort of another loophole where script became possible again. So we're sort of seeing the rise again of these sort of token payments. Mm. Um, yeah, alongside, I suppose, um, gift card balances. You know, Amazon also pays streamers on its uh, streaming platform, Twitch, in bits, which are another kind of token as mm. well. So people who are, you know, chatting and hanging out in hot tubs or playing games online on the streaming platform, one of the ways they can earn money is through these special tokens called bits. Mm. And Amazon in turn also, you know, take a take a cut of those and those in turn, you know, can be redeemed sort of through the Amazon platform or through Amazon wish lists, you know. It's concerning for like mm. the future of employment. I'm 
compensation, really, because, you know, it's not giving those people any sort of economic power or economic freedom. You know, like, as you said, it is sort of a level of exploitation. And there's also, you know, other online content creators, like you mentioned, gamers and stuff as well, like, you know, they get paid by people who are purchasing items on an Amazon wish list or sending them gift cards and things like that. But like, it's all kind of keeping all the money centralized into this one little ecosystem that just happens to be owned by this giant tech uh, behemoth, like, you know, where does their, like, employment rights come into it? Or where does, like, how, again, how is this unregulated or led away with, really? Yeah, I actually, I, I, one of the things that kind of made me really interested in looking at these tokens was, I came across, you know, the idea of, like, wish lists and tokens mm. in, you know, sex coming platforms like Chatterbait. And sort of from there started looking at Twitch. And I think it was in Emily Witt's book Future Sex she writes about sort of trawling through like Amazon wish lists so she's looking at streamers sort of profiles and obviously one of the ways they make money is is through tokens and uh, the reason these tokens are popular is partly obviously um, their audiences prefer sometimes paying in the tokens because they feel a little bit more personal or they allow the viewer to feel a little bit more bonded to the streamer but uh, also for for sex workers, you know, being paid, especially on the Internet, is notoriously difficult. It's been really difficult. Uh, a lot of payments processors like PayPal mm. are really averse to dealing with sex work, not for any moral reasons necessarily, but just because of the kind of historical issue of chargebacks. That's people, you know, turning around and saying, oh, I don't know how Pornhub got on my credit card, mm. you know, uh, <laughs> so they don't really want to engage with paying uh, for, you know, paying or, or processing payments mm. in the porn industry or in the sex work industry. And so these sorts of uh, grey area tokens have sort of played a role for sex workers uh, in being paid. They allow for a certain amount of freedom for the mm. worker, but then they can also be quite exploitative. So if you're a viewer, you know, who wants to buy these tokens to like tip or you know, cheer in the vernacular of the platform for for a, a streamer, for for a performer on one of these platforms. It's very, very easy for you to turn your money, your, you know, your state backed money, your real money uh, into a token. But it's quite difficult for the worker on the platform to turn that money, uh, that token back mm. into real money. Uh, it can take a lot of time. It can be very costly in terms of the platform, you know, taking uh, cuts or fees from mm. it. You know, a lot of the platforms take anything up to like 50% cuts off the tokens. But also it can just be really difficult. Um, many of the platforms will only pay, you know, the tokens out in checks or electronic transfer. Um, checks yeah Cheek. yeah no it's it's actually you know it can be really uh, I, I don't know what the word would be like there's a lot of friction in yeah. terms of actually like, cashing that seems it out deliberately very awkward. much it's so. like hostile architecture in a way. Yeah, yeah yeah it's like the, the the rails in and the rails out are very difficult different mm. yeah they're very different for the person buying the tokens yeah and the person who is cashing them out yeah it's like a they're intentionally creating extra intentionally barriers intentionally getting the Physical money. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a hierarchy at play, I'd say, between the people who buy the tokens and then the people who actually have to eke out a living mm. with these sorts of token economies. Um and you know, it's it's interesting, like one of the other things I noticed with that uh on places like Twitch as well though, where people have been like frozen out by other platforms, like so extremists as well, are also eking out 
a living on Twitch. Mm. So people who've been frozen out, for example, for like alt-right views, mm. uh, you know, or pro-Russian sentiment, for example, they're also using Twitch mm. as a way to make money. And I guess what's kind of problematic about that as well is that, you know, the more extreme your political views, the more money or yeah. the more tokens you get. So if you dial up your, yeah. your controversial opinions. controversy. Because yeah. that's the thing about when you get mm. to this space where it's like, oh, we're just tipping people. We're just celebrating the work of this creator because we like them and the stuff that they do on Twitch. You can see it like that and you can see how people want to make that association to not be about money because they don't want it to feel so transactional because, you know, that would be unsavoury. There's loads of that kind of psychology too, but it's like, oh, I'm nearly losing my train of thought here, but (laughs) you don't want to see it as money, but you do want to reward them somehow. And it is financially beneficial, even if they're locked into a system, you know, there's a lot of things you can buy on Amazon. So it can be very, very useful. So it is transactional at the end of the day. They are buying you things that enable you to buy things on Amazon. Locks yeah. it into the Amazon yeah. network. Yeah. It's somehow not finance. You feel okay about that because it's you're not paying someone for the stump. But it is a livelihood. Yeah. It is providing them with things. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of like hustle culture, like you said, yeah. they will respond to that by trying to do more of the thing that gets them those rewards as a livelihood. Yeah. So, you know, people are paying because thinking, I like this creator and I like who they are. Yeah. And I don't want to feel like it's transactional because this is like a connection I've made online. There's like a parasocial relationship there. Exactly. But if they're then responding to the commercial benefit and, you know, shaping themselves to create more of that reward, then that authenticity is being stripped away yeah as the uh, like it, yeah. it's it's a head fuck I was obsessed with wish lists so I spent so much time looking at what people asked and looking at reddit forums where like people on OnlyFans or on Twitch asked each other how they curated their wish lists like what do you ask for on your wish list what is okay to ask for what do men like to buy and, you know, the wish list is really carefully curated in terms of kind of... So they're having to think that through yeah, really carefully as well. People like don't ask for children's toys, for example. Mm. You, they ask for cat toys. Do you know? Mm. They ask for sexy rabbit ears. They don't ask for winter coats. They mm. ask for maybe occasionally like an aspirational household item, like a Dyson. Mm. You, you don't really ask for... Toilet know, roll. <laughs> I did you see paper towels one time and I was okay. like, huh, that's a bit odd. Yeah. And yogurt. But like mostly it's like Michael Kors clutches or it's things that they might use in their stream. So outfits. Fit the idea of the whole of The whole, yeah, and the persona they're creating yeah. or, you know, so an ASMR streamer on Twitch, maybe who has sort of a geeky audience, it might be World of Warcraft figurines and also things for her outfits or yoga gear for downtime. Yeah, it tends to be sort of very much curated for what what people expect she might like or what people might like to buy her. But there are also these sort of intermediaries like Wish Tender that will buy gifts from the streamers and turn them into cash. This is what fascinated me as well. I was like, there's another cottage industry Mm. popping up here in the intermediaries trying to bridge that gap between 
the bits, the fake money and making it, yeah. you know, economically viable for the people who are being rewarded with it. And yeah. it's just like everything is a fucking hustle. Yeah. And it's a bit like a conversation we had with Aoife Barry. Yeah. About it's starting to feel like every interaction online is a transaction. But aren't all our romantic relationships transactions? I mean, Ooh. I was talking to my mother about her early marriage as part of the book and I feel a bit bad actually the way it's framed. It's kind of stuck in the middle of this other conversation about wish lists and I feel like she doesn't come off well because she's talking <laughs> about like the gifts my dad gave her, you know. Yeah. So I say, uh, you know, what sort of money, how did you handle money in your early marriage? And she's like, oh my, you know, your dad decided that I can't remember exactly a hundred pounds. I just read it. It was like I think it was five pounds a week. Yeah, it's something like five pounds. And then she says, but he also gave me so many gifts. He was so generous. Mm. He gave me a dishwasher, gave me a hostess trolley, gave me a fur coat. And, you know, and it's like, yeah, because, you know, a lot of I understand a lot of these sorts of gifting practices within the broader economy Mm. of women's money, which was that a lot of women have always sort of transacted in these invisible dollars and in these sorts of economies of the gift where, yeah, yeah, we sort of we sort of like to pretend that these sort of transactions aren't happening or we like to colour them with sort of gifts. Yeah, like sort of like they're kept well, like women from like different kind of areas are like kept well, like, Mm. you know, he always buys her nice dresses and he always looks after her and stuff. Yeah, or we have acceptable transactions and unacceptable transactions like, you know, I'm wearing, well, I'm actually not wearing my engagement ring right now, but, you know, I have an engagement ring and that's an acceptable Mm. romantic transaction that we work really hard to distinguish from like unacceptable sex work. But Mm, why is it okay to buy somebody a ring that's worth, you know, three and a half times your rent, Mm. but not okay to pay somebody for sex? Like, what would it be like if uh, you decided, I earn more than you, Cormac, here's some money, here's some (laughs) weekly allowance. (laughs) Like, as a gesture to make things equitable, but I'm sure he wouldn't respond to that very well. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure he would happily take money <laughs> like, oh, a very comfortable person <laughs> would not feel too manly for that at all would be quite happy um, as would I if the situation was the first to fair I'm not going to turn down money well aren't you very modern and progressive in your attitudes <laughs> I, or I just really like yeah. money <laughs> one or the other but I, I can't believe how many like women I know, like maybe around my age, who people are, who are going on maternity leave mm. or taking career breaks where this still seems to be a stumbling block in their relationships. Yeah. That that question of your money and my money or yeah. the sense of being like beholden to their partners. Uh, yeah, because particularly they, when they stop working. Yeah, they have, like, in a sense, decided, you know, it's not a... <laughs> deciding is kind of a, a yeah. nebulous term even no, exactly. in this case because like something has to be done to look after this baby. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they've maybe decided to forego their wage so then, you know, everything's relying on the partner's wage and And suddenly they feel like it's the not dynamic. their money. Yeah. 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 And like what they're spending on, what they think is spending on, how they treat themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah the things you spend discretionary in- yeah. income on it's like suddenly become a different thing altogether. Yeah. I, yeah. And I think there's still a societal thing of, you know, when women earn more than men in some relationships, that becomes a problem a problem in certain relationships because yeah. that's not what the status quo was for so many years. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, not 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 all relationships and modern modern relationships are definitely changing that. I think that's great. But um, it's definitely still a thing that comes up in conversations, I think. Oh, God, definitely. I think yeah. finance is still one of like the pain points in any relationship when they're ha- when those conversations do arise. 
Now, there's a whole generation of kids growing up that are quite used to using fake money or whatever we want, itchy and scratchy dollars and stuff like that. Uh, they have their Robux in Roblox. Uh, I've had to buy my little brother foot coins or vouchers for such things in, in FIFA so that he can, I don't know, buy different jerseys or something like that. I don't know. Buy a real jersey. Jesus. <laughs> um, but like this is becoming commonplace for a whole generation. They buy in-game comp content. They get outfits for their avatar, props to play with. All of it's virtual. It's bits and bytes. They don't actually own any of it. It only exists in the ecosystem in which they've bought it. They can't bring it anywhere else. It's very, very confined, very limited. But I do wonder what their attitude is going to be to these tokens and to these conversations that we're having because we didn't grow up like that, exchanging things that... Well, maybe not to the extent that they do it. Um, but when you hear about things like we were talking about earlier with NFTs and the metaverse, buying virtual property in the metaverse, mm. someone my age likely looks at that and goes, would you fuck off? But I can yeah. see how a lot of like younger people who are so used to buying in-game content and stuff like that would just not, not even balk at that at all. Yeah, that maybe, do you think like their attitude to sort of value or digital value maybe will be different? Definitely. So I yeah. had this conversation towards the end of the book with uh, this guy who's like the VP, I think, of EA Games. And he's a sort of a, I suppose we might call him a prepper uh, in that, I mean, well, he lives a lot, of, spends a lot of time his time on a catamaran, which I think is a kind of a yacht, with his wife, um, who is Sarah Flanagan. She was this, she was a bit of a like crypto savant, I think. Uh, she won like the Young Scientists oh, right. when I was young. I know you were probably tiny. But when I was 12, <laughs> um, she won the Young Scientist. She was about 16 for this amazing like RSA algorithm that she did. So she was a bit of a maths prodigy. Um, anyway, she's his wife. Sorry, that's a bit of an aside. Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> it is very interesting. I actually wanted to interview her, but she, uh, speaking of dynamics, she didn't talk very much on the interview. He talked a lot. Uh, his name is Luke Bartlett and he had this theory that in the future um, generations will be so beholden to digital value that they won't be that interested in physical goods anymore and that this will be really good for the environment. Now, personally, I think that is like complete bullshit. Um, Has he heard of data centres? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, you know, A, I think it's just, it's an addendum to physical stuff. If, yeah. you know, any of the gamers I spoke to or interviewed for the book were obsessed, yeah, with their Fortnite skins, but they were also obsessed with their physical lightsabers yeah. and their Lego. So. Yeah, their physical collectible items. I yeah. mean, like, I know lots of kids now want vouchers a lot earlier than they used to as opposed to toys, which, you know, is great yeah. for me. But they do use the vouchers to buy physical things. Yeah. So, it yeah. is, it, it's a, as you said, it's a conduit to the physical realm. Yeah, yeah. Still. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. And we talked a bit about the uh, board Ape NFTs being like um, membership to a little club. Yeah. And I loved in the book how you compared these to a centuries old uh, thing called Jeton Royou Royou my French is rubbish <laughs> that was a great uh, example <laughs> but basically these were things that gave people bragging rights and in-group access can you explain it and maybe pronounce it a lot better than I just um, did <laughs> that, that's so funny I just realised I don't know if I've ever said it Alive, but I think it's, yeah, Jetna Royal or something like oh, that. Oh, that was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. But um, yeah, when I came across that too, I was like, oh, that really like solidified something for me too. Because I think, you know, the discussion you get a lot about NFTs or game tokens is just kind of like, oh, it's just bragging rights, you know. And 
I was really interested in, yes, or is everybody just really stupid or what is the value to the bragging right? Like, why are people then interested in having bragging Mm -hmm. rights and what do bragging rights do? And I spoke a lot to this um, historian called Claire Rowan, who's done a lot of work about the history of token economies. And one of the things uh, I came across was this medieval token from France, uh, these jetons, which were... They were tokens that had an exchange value, but more than their exchange value, they had a symbolic value. So the actual symbols on the token um, meant something. And if you understood what they meant, it kind of meant that you were in the club, a little bit like the board ape, I guess. And um, yeah, so they had this kind of like prestige value that was more than their economic value. And if you understood that and if you owned one of those um yeah, it kind of it it it, it puts you in some kind of in group. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah. yeah. So um, immediately when I heard about that, I was like, okay, that sounds a little bit like board ape. It sounds a little bit like friends with benefits. It sounds like the the NFT sort of phenomenon. And um, I was also sort of talking to young gamers about what motivated them to acquire these supposedly useless, not just NFTs, but useless gaming tokens. So a lot of the skins or digital goods in these online worlds are deliberately designed to be useless. They have no in-game utility. They don't make you faster or stronger. Um, And one of my favorite stories was from uh, this 13-year-old Will who talked a lot about how he kept being killed in Fortnite. So he'd spawn into the game and I think he just would be murdered immediately. And he said to me that he saved up for ages then to buy a really cool neck tattoo. And I don't know enough about Fortnite to know whether this worked really well for him, but he said it did in that he bought the tattoo partly to sort of signal to other players that he was OG, you know, that he was a serious player. Now, right. whether that worked or not, you know, maybe someone will be rolling their eyes and be like, you need to do a bit more than that, Will. But <laughs> he, uh, this was what he was saying to me. And, you know, it kind of made sense in that he was saying, you know, by buying the right skin, by buying the right tattoo, you know, these things have a function. They tell other people in the game, like, I'm a serious player. I'm not, you know, a noob. You're not going to just like... I'm I'm somebody to be reckoned with. Because again, it comes back to the value, I guess, because yeah. people who are playing Fortnite would know that that neck tattoo is really expensive. Exactly. So, oh yeah. Jesus, this guy has saved like so yeah. much like tokens. I don't. Yeah, know. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm a serious player. <laughs> exactly. So he's telling other people like he's signaling. I've been around a while. I'm around a while. Mm-hmm. I've invested in this space. Yeah. I'm an OG, and so you have to take me seriously. So if you're an opportunistic person who's killing new players to to get ahead, you need to reckon with me actually. Mm. And immediately I was like, oh yeah, so this is just a bragging right. Absolutely. But you can see now how a bragging right actually has this sort of practical function that translates into economic, well, not in that particular case, but in in other cases, you know, translates into these other kind of practical values. And I actually thought, hang on, you can actually also take Will's sort of thinking and apply that to something like the art market, Mm. where people buy art because of what it says about them. Yeah. You know, even that whole idea of new money, Mm. you know, the reason a lot of people might buy a Mondrian or something isn't because that it's not even necessarily that that piece of work is necessarily going to sell for more and that's going to translate directly into economic returns. But what does that 
art, having that piece of art, even having that NFT actually say about you within a particular subculture at one particular moment in time? Mm. And does that then translate? Does that signal value translate into economic value? And yeah, it does. Yeah, it's sort know. of like a status symbol. Status Not dissimilar symbol. to anybody status buying. Status symbol, exactly. You know, a really expensive Birkin. car. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. The, exactly. The and good, they're like, which... Speaking of value, so I teach actually teach a class on art and money. It's probably my favorite class. Uh, we talk a lot about value and what makes things valuable. And one of my favorite things, because it's just such a head melt, mm-hmm. is like the Veblen good. So, you know, some things are valuable because they're scarce. Some things are valuable because they take a long time to make. And Veblen goods are valuable because they're expensive. Yeah. <laughs> so ah. they're valuable because they're valuable. So like <laughs> a Birkin bag is a Veblen good. And so for a while we're in it. Um, and so there's, you know, with all the kind of digital currencies and the and, and we've talked a lot about like what, you know, what really is value and things like that. There's a sort of an almost utopianism element to all of this where, you know, reworking the financial system and using all these new technologies to make things more accessible and equitable. And it's all very nice sounding and things like that. And there's kind of often been for years talks of like a fully cashless society which always makes me feel a bit squee about the idea of that that's accessible and equitable because I don't at the moment don't know if that is possible to create that's a controlled system as well do you know yeah. making things cashless you know it does you know de like disempower criminals who want to use cash for mm-hmm. society but there's lots of other people who are not engaged in criminal activity exactly. who rely on cash yeah. for various reasons and I think cashless Basically, does what Amazon's doing, but and this is just on a wider level. system. Yeah. But yeah, but it's still in like put, forcing people into a system. Mm. So I'm, I'm just what, curious about your thoughts on all of that. Yeah, I mean, I came into money because I was excited by the idea that money was a technology, and yeah, initially excited by the idea that then also maybe you could redesign it or design it differently and get a different outcome. Uh, and quickly became really disillusioned with that idea. So uh, early on, like in 2013, 2014, 2015, I was very involved with activist movements, which were very male dominated, I suppose, um, that were trying to rebuild the economy sort of one token at a time. And um, yeah, I suppose, you know, they they all had the, the same sort of failing. So one was that they had this idea that, you know, if you put a blockchain on something or, you know, if you just redesign the money properly, that the right society would just fall into place, you know, mm. without any other kind of work. So if we just wrote the right code, basically, yeah. everybody would be fine. And secondly, I guess there was this sense of like, yeah, how can we remake money? But the sort of we that involved was never really brought into consideration. Mm. And the we in question was always generally like white European men. And uh, for tokens, I kind of delved more into that than I ever had before. And really, it was so interesting because I think I still thought those ideas were relatively recent, that they'd sort of emerged, you know, post 2008. Mm -hmm. But actually, then looking into the history of like anarchism or the history of monetary reform, it's there for hundreds of years. So like Joseph Proudhon, who's like the father of anarchism, uh, you know, is he's writing these screeds about removing the parasitic middlemen from the banks. <laughs> you know, uh, a couple of hundred years ago, yeah. you have these anarchists in the States who are setting up, you know, they're dragging their wives and kids off to these like 
communes in the middle of nowhere called things like New Harmony and Utopia. <laughs> and, you know, the, the communes are they're going to run on new kinds of money, like things like time banks, which, you know, in theory, they're kind of nice ideas. So like everyone's hour everyone's time is going to be worth the same, for example, or, you know, everybody's going to uh, go into debt with everybody else. And, you know, we're going to create different kinds of equitable money. And, you know, in theory, some of those ideas are really utopian. But then, you know, if you look at the decision-making structures, it's like only men get to make decisions mm. in these utopian societies. Yeah. Or um, in a really weird way that feels really pr like really anticipate Silicon Valley. It's like they kind of imagined by like allowing the most freest exercise of markets ever that you're somehow going to produce a utopian society. Mm. And it's really weird because obviously you get that idea, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, but you really get it in early, some of these early anarchist experiments mm. as well. So I don't know. I just, I find some of that really, uh, really fascinating, but uh, also really kind of problematic. Yeah. Yeah. And another way that technologies can kind of disrupt finance is in the scale of, you know, trends like, you know, meme stock uh, phenomenon. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I thought that that is so interesting because we hear so much, I suppose, about platforms issuing tokens, but maybe some of the more interesting power is in the platform and actually like shaping market opinion or, you know, driving these sorts of market contagion. So, you know, GameStop uh, obviously is a really good example mm -hmm. of that, where uh, around 2020, we saw the rise of apps that were kind of social media like, but also uh, played a role in uh, actually shaping markets. Yeah, they um, kind of gave people who weren't usually trading in stock access to retail exactly. uh, retail investment as well. Yes, retail yeah. trading. Yeah. yeah, retail trading, that's the word I was yeah. looking for. I find it so interesting as well because alongside, I suppose, the rise of these, these apps that, as you say, gave access to people who may be in the absence of, of things like gambling or sports during the pandemic, um, gave them access to uh, retail trading. We also saw the rise of, of, I suppose, what we now call like the Finfluencer, so the financial <laughs> influencer, these characters like Roaring Kitty on social media or the stock guy on Twitch that um, were, you know, building communities around mm. them where they were sort of shilling bets or shilling financial positions um, and where then making a bet became sort of a statement of your affinity with a particular subculture, your your connection to that community. Um, I'm getting really interested in those influencers things. Like yeah, because yeah. like with the meme stocks thing, I'm, mm. I'm torn about it myself yeah. because like there's an element of like a cool people power side to that. Like they didn't want GameStop to fold. It was a thing that mm. they liked. And, you know, investor says it's not worth anything anymore. So we're just going to let it die on the vine. And they changed that narrative. Now, it's been ups and downs since I actually don't even know what the status of GameStop is at this point in time that we're having this conversation. But at that time, they essentially rescued a business. That's good. But it did seem tinged with bad because this whole meme stock thing is also still about manipulation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you tell people what to invest in as a influencer or whatever you're at. Um, maybe because you're going to benefit from it as well. Like there'd be a, like a lot of questions if I was seeing someone telling me what to invest in. I'd be like, okay, are you invested in that? So do you, do you benefit? Like, Yeah, I think it, it's funny. Previous to GameStop, 
the culture in in the Reddit spaces like Wall Street Bets, which is is where a lot of people were discussing things like shorting mm. GameStop, was very very individualistic. So. Like a really common thing I think people said was like, say it with me, trading is not a team sport. So it's all about individualism. And then around the time of GameStop, you had this sort of ape meme, you know, mm-hmm. emerging, yeah. which I suppose is similar to the board ape. So it was like um, apes together strong, I guess, is one of the, the memes. So it was this idea of like a kind of a mindless uh, resistance where people were coming together, not through some sort of expertise, but sort of. Um, through a collective, I suppose, brute force. Mm. So just by holding the stock collectively that you could resist. But it's 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 kind of a strange one because, yeah, the, there was sort of a lip service to like sticking it to the man mm. or sticking it to capitalism. And yet, in some ways, that wasn't really happening. There was a lot of desperation, actually, and no real collectivity mm. sort of happening within the space. And, you know, sadly, the people who really made money out of GameStop, you know, again, were sort of the large hedge funds, the market maker for Robinhood, the social media app. That was really you know, funny, actually, because it was like, yeah. oh, yeah, we saved GameStop. It's like, yeah, so you coated that investor yeah. that was going to let it die his pockets. Like, well yeah. done. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, what did you really yeah. achieve? Like, yeah, yeah. So it was, yeah, yeah it was a, it was a, it was a strange one. But, um, yeah, and I think if anything, it just sort of, made visible that sort of really collective yeah collective sort of desperation that mm. I think a lot of people were sort of feeling at that particular moment in mm. time where it wasn't really but sure but the house always wins yeah essentially the house always yeah. wins yeah um, and um, so we talked a little bit as well about like the NFTs and, and stuff like that and you know buying a virtual house and things like that and that's what's you know a major part of the metaverse Um you know, where people will be expected to kind of trade these kind of virtual tokens, virtual properties, virtual anything really kind of like harkens back to bartering system, really. Uh, what are your thoughts on that and what the future might hold for? I think um, even in your intro, you were sort of talking about how much like the vision of the metaverse is kind of something that seems to be uh, shilled by the people with a vested interest mm. in the metaverse. It's like you will live on the metaverse, you know, and <laughs> that's sort of how I would feel about it which is like live on the metaverse or else there's there's there doesn't feel like there's really much momentum coming from Mm. anybody except for the people who had a vested interest in it which seems a bit naive of them because the reason why like the internet is just a commercial entity at the moment like Mm -hmm. i said earlier everything is a transaction now and but that started off because of like user-generated content, community development and stuff like that. Like there would be, we wouldn't be where we are at the internet today without people having invested their time and energy into this as a concept. But instead of like waiting for any of that kind of organic growth to happen, these people are just like, no, get in the metaverse now. You have to yeah. be. If you don't, you're missing out if you're not there. Yeah, exactly. Get in there so I can start making money off you yeah. immediately. Like they're not even, they don't even have the politeness to allow the communities to form before they start exploiting <laughs> them now. Now they're just like, now come in here and we'll start ripping you off. Like, yeah. get on board. Yeah. I hate it so much. <laughs> <laughs> no, just, uh, speaking yeah. of putting people into closed ecosystems that can rip them off, <laughs> what are your thoughts on the X super app proposed by Elon Musk? <laughs> Any, any suggestions there? Not really. No, I mean, God, no, no, nothing much to say yeah. there. No, not not no. not going to be drawn onto even commenting uh, on Elon Musk's no. bad ideas. 
I mean, I I guess I don't know. I'm 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 kind of fascinated by like speaking of the metaverse and Musk and all that. My my take on on that is like it's almost like this sort of super rich fantasy of sort of transcending uh, the like broken reality in some mm-hmm. way. So like we talked a minute ago about like GameStop and I feel like on one hand, like for for ordinary people, we had the sort of Lambos or food stamps sort of idea where uh, retail trading during the pandemic became this sort of survival strategy where like there's no there's no sort of formal pathway anymore to what maybe was called like the good life. There's mm-hmm. no formal pathway to like houses or financial security in the way there used to be. And so I think for a lot of people, things like NFTs or crypto um, or retail trading sort of became these sort of desperate bets Mm -hmm. to try and find that sort of financial security or find that sort of spot in the lifeboats. Um, And then in a weird way, I feel like for the super rich, some of these fantasies of like colonizing Mars or let's all move to the metaverse or get in there, you know, are they're another kind of a fantasy. Mm. So I was like watching the, you know, Meta's ad, uh, their Super Bowl ad for the metaverse. And it's a really, really strange ad. So it's like shows these kind of uh, animatronic band of like, it's like they're little animals and they're playing music in a kind of a 1980s space themed dive. And then uh, the the restaurant closes down and the animals, you know, eventually they end up in landfill. And then somebody rescues the main singer uh, from the landfill. So he's in this rubbish dump. He gets rescued and brought to, I think it's called the Bosworth Space Centre, something to do with Facebook. He kind of ends up working for Facebook, basically. And he's like, a, he's a, he's a not a human sign, he's a dog sign pointing the way to the cafe. Okay. And eventually he finds an Oculus Rift <laughs> And he's reunited with all his old bandmates in the metaverse where nobody has a bottom half. And that's the end. (laughs) That's like the end of the that's the end of the advertisement. And it's kind of like, yeah, it's like when your future, when your reality is really shit, then you can find something in the metaverse. I don't I don't know. Yeah, It's like it's very sad. What is the message? (laughs) And that was their pitch. That was and how much did they pay for that? What was the value oh, of that? Right. <laughs> I think Super Bowl ads are they cost something like fourteen mil fourteen billion, maybe fourteen million. So even the production yeah. of the ad is not even accounted for. Yeah, Jeez. but it's like and it's simple minds, don't you forget about me is the song. But like, <laughs> it's just like I just couldn't get like how that was the that was the best they could say about the metaverse was like when you end up in a garbage heap and now you're a sign. <laughs> you can be on the metaverse. Now you can you're assigned. visit all your dead and visit friends your friends who you used to metaverse. see in, in real virtual life. reality. In virtual reality. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's um, so great. Oh. But yeah, I kind of wonder if some of these like fantasies of like Musk's, you know, SpaceX and you know, freezing your head or. There's definitely yeah. so many overlaps with that super rich society and their very prepping. weird views and what people want with prepping and Teals, also that bunkers. transhumanism concept. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, it's a it's a strange L world. And these are the people who are usually orchestrating the things that we do and, and the, the ecosystems future of we money. operate in. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately. Cool. <laughs> On that. 
happy note. <laughs> Thanks so much for talking to us today, Rachel. No uh, it's been as fascinating as reading your book has been. I really, really recommend people pick up a copy. Uh, it's called, let me get the full name here with the subtitle and everything, Tokens, The Future of Money in the Age of the Platform. Thank you so much. Thank you so Thank much. You. For Tech's Sake is a co-production from Silicon Republic and the Headstuff Podcast Network, hosted by Elaine Burke and Jenny Darmody. Thank you to Hilary Barry for production, Matt Mahan and Dali for our graphics, Claudia Grandes for her social media support and all at the Headstuff team. You can follow us at For Tech's Sake Pod on your platform of choice or let us know what you think at fortechsakepod at gmail.com. As a Headstuff Plus community member, you get access to bonus content from across the network. So do check out some of our sister shows and give them your support as well. And tune in next week for a brand new episode. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.